I hope you got to meet someone new. I hope you got to meet someone new. I got to meet someone new. Hey, Abby. Good to see you. Um, Guys, man, uh, if you don't know who I am, if you're new here, if it's your first time, my name is Brian Williams. I am the Young Adults Pastor, um, and it's my privilege, it's my honor to get to share the Word of God tonight. Um, I, I Just coming up here, I like the words of that last song, come on, come on, <laughs> children of God, be who you are, be who you are. I just like singing that and just realizing like, man, that is what, that is, that is, I think for Sarah and I both. For Brian Howard, for this whole church staff, for God Himself. That's kind of bold, but I think it's true. It's that's God's call. He's like, guys, be who you are. And it's not a condemning call. It's not like a come on, man, be who you are. Like, it's this encouraging, like, you already are my child. You already are God's child. You already have everything you need. Come on, come on. There's such life and light and beauty for you. Come on, be who you are. What a beautiful thing. I just think that's so, so wonderful. And I hope um, next time maybe if you hear that song, it just resonates in your heart the beauty and the call of that. Who you are. Come on, be who you are. All of heaven is cheering us on to that. What a wonderful thing. And we, we get to cheer one another on to that same thing. We're joining in with heaven, not just for ourselves, but for everyone in this room. To be like, whoever's sitting next to you, I don't know, Jim. You're like, Jim, come on, man. Be who you are. Child of God, be who you are. Such a good thing. Well, if you uh, haven't been with us, um, we're going through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which is three letters in the Bible that comes right near the very end, right before the book of Revelation. At least that's how it's organized. And... um, We've been in 1 John, which is five chapters. We've really been walking through it, um, taking the time to go through it. And tonight, I get to close it out, to finish out the book of 1 John. 1 John. Woohoo! Yeah, all right, 1 John. Um, we're also going to have uh, two more weeks. Next week, we're going to cover the book of 2 John, and the week after that, the book of 3 John. Yes, it's fast, but they're each only like one chapter. They're like pretty short. So we're going to jump into those. But tonight, we get to close out... Uh, the book of 1 John. It's pretty great. So our passage where we're starting tonight is actually uh, where Brian Howard left off last week. Any, was anybody here last week? Got to hear Brian Howard preach the first half of chapter 5? Yes. So good, man. Eternity. It's beautiful. It's beautiful and good. Um, we're coming back to that. And I actually want to start at verse 13, which is where Brian left off last week, because it's just so so important. It's so central to this whole letter and just to life and everything in general. (laughs) It's just so important. So here it is. Here's verse 13. It goes like this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life life. You may know that you have eternal life. Like for eight weeks, we've been walking through this whole letter. And as John states here, the, the entirety of the, of the letter is, is ultimately, it's just affirming, it's clarifying, it's wrestling to the ground, the assurance that we have. 
The assurance that his readers have that they are following the true gospel and that they have eternal life in Jesus. That they have it. It's theirs. A phrase that I just want to put up here below this, and then we're going to talk through it, is this reality that God gives it and we live it. We have eternal life. God gives it and we live it. We get to live it. Like, look at this sentence again, right? You know that you have eternal life. He wrote all these things so that the believer may know we have it. I think so many of us, myself included at times, I hope that I might get it one day. But John says, no, no, no. You can know you have it. You can know you have eternal life. Not just hope for it, but know you have it. And that changes everything. It changes everything. It's given to us by God through Jesus. It's given to us. And we know we have it because Jesus is who he says he is. He was there at the beginning. All things have been created through him and for him. He is the beginning of all things, before all things, and in him all things hold together. He conquered the grave. And he's enthroned in heavenly places. Jesus is who he says he is. And he has proven it time and time again. And he fulfills every word he speaks. Every single word he speaks, he fulfills. And he says eternal life is a gift that he gives to those who appeal to him through faith. It's something he gives. And he said that. And so we can take that to the bank and know that we have eternal life if we appeal to him through faith. And so it's given to us. And then we live it. Make sure you get in this, right, this order too. He gives it, we live it. It's not we live it, then he gives it. He gives it, then we live it. <coughs> Sorry. It's hard to do with a mic. So, he gives it, we live it. How do we live it? Well, this whole book's really been about that. But we, it's proven. The, the fact that we know that we have eternal life, the fact that we have eternal life is proven by the fruits of the Holy Spirit within us. And as Romans 12 puts it, by the transformation or the sanctification, to use like a theological word, of our minds, our lives, our character, the, the transformation of us as a whole, as all that we are, so that we can offer ourselves to God for righteousness, for love's sake, and that being our spiritual act of worship. This is what it is to live out what we've been given. And that's what First John, he, the, all through that letter, he's kind of talking about it. He's like, you know, come on, be who you are. This is who you are. It's been given to you. Now live it. And how can you know you have it? Because look at the fruit in your life. You're living it. That's how you can be so, so confident. And it's true. This is true. Whether you feel distant from God or you feel close to him. This is true. He gives it, we live it. Because eternal life is not based on feelings, but on facts. Your eternal life, your eternal destiny, your eternal home with God is not based on how you feel about it, but on the fact that God gave it to you. And now you can live it. You can. I think for many of us, myself included at times, I think that I can't. I feel like I can't live this. Look how terrible I've been. <laughs> like, look at the track record. It's probably not possible. Why try? But man, the truth is that we can live it. We can live it out. And we got to aim for that. 
I want to speak to those in here that if you look at your life, if you look at that past track record, and you're like, I'm following Jesus, I love Jesus, I put my faith in him, I'm like, you know, I want to be a follower of him, I want people to know me for that, I want to have eternal life and have confidence in that, but yet you look back at everything and you're like, man, the best I can do is hope. Because look at this. I don't have confidence that he's given it to me, and I, and I don't have confidence that I'm even living it at all. I want to speak to you. I want to give you a, a truth that, that has been helpful for me and, and gives me comfort and encouragement, and I pray it does for you too, and it's this, that God is future-oriented. He's future-oriented. He's a God of redemption. Like, he, he thinks ahead and says, yeah, I like that. <laughs> because he's a part of it. He can do it. You're not done. You're never done. God is future-oriented. He's a source of hope. And like, when, 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 when there's correction, he's the champion of correction. He's the king of correction. And not correction to scold you, but correction to better you, to make you better. He's the, that was kind of weird, I guess. Better you. I don't know why I said it like that. But that's who he is. He's the king of correction. So that you may be closer to him, follow more uh, closely to him, and be in that perpetually new life that Jesus calls us to and that Jesus offers. So, man, I get distracted and sometimes it causes problems. For those of you who are new, welcome. I get distracted. Now you know. So, he gives it, we live it, right? And if you look at the second part of this and, and you're like, man, I just don't see any fruit in my life. I just don't see it. Hope is not lost. It's not. Mourn the past, yes. Mourn what you see that isn't right. Mourn the pain that you've had to walk through, the consequences of all that stuff. Mourn it. Mourn that you're not where you wish you were. But don't let yourself be ensnared, be entrapped by lost opportunity. Don't let yourself be held back from the opportunity that is here right now, today, tonight, tomorrow. There is eternal opportunity and hope that God has open-handedly given to you in this moment. Rest in the fact that he gives it. And you didn't earn it. But he does give it. There is hope. In Romans 15, 13, it goes like this. Favorite verse, one of my favorite verses. But I want to encourage you, memorize this verse. It's a good one to memorize. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives it, we live it, and it comes from trusting. And trust is an active thing. It's a part of that living it out thing. You've already been given it, but to live it out, you've got to trust. It's an actionable thing, trust is. So we need to all trust like the Lord Almighty is the giver of salvation, that he has given it. And then we need to live like he's given it to you. And in this way, we can know that we have eternal life.
Today's a new day, a new opportunity, and so is tomorrow. Don't miss out on that. Don't miss out on that, on what God can do, on what he has in mind. I love also in Graves into the Gardens, the song that we sung right before that one, that he turns shame into glory. What? (laughs) And he's the only one who can do that. But guess what? He does that sort of stuff. So whatever to you feels like, man, this is a chain that I can never get rid of, a burden that can in no way ever be redeemed, you're shortchanging the God who can do anything and intends to do good things in and through you. We are the children of God. We are the children of God. And so we are a people of hope, perpetual hope, incessant hope, because we know that we have eternal life. Continues in verse 14. He writes this, and this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I think you could say, this is my like boiling down of it. There's like two types of prayer. You have abiding prayer and then you have intercessory prayer. And abiding prayer is sort of like John 15 sort of stuff where it's like, you know, uh, Jesus is like, I'm the vine, you're the branches. It's, it's the like being friends with God. It's, it's the being his child. It's the just sitting knee to knee, you know, nose to nose and be like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> you know, like, like that's the abiding prayer. Intercessory prayer is sort of the the second layer of that, and it's actually the one I think we most often run to, the one that we're more comfortable doing, which is that it's interceding, it's stepping in, it's calling out, it's using the authority and and the space and all that we've been given to, on behalf of actionable things, seeing things happen, seeing things change in our lives and the lives of others. And God invites us into that. Yeah, does God need us to do this? Like, Technically, no, but what a patient and loving God that he goes, no, I want you to participate for your good, that you can know me more, that you could see what it's like, that you could participate in this beautiful thing I'm doing. You're not useless. I have a purpose for you. And we get invited into it. What a beautiful thing. So there's these two types, and I don't really want to elevate one over the other, um, but we need them both. We need them both. Both are important. Uh, I, I, if you're in here and you're like, you know, I know God, I know about him. I know about God. And I see him do work through me. Like I, I see what he speaks wisdom at times or, or whatever. I get insight in a way that's like, wow, is that gifting or is that God? I'm not sure. If you feel like God is constantly using you, but he's, you know, hitting your mind and your body and then impacting other people and bypassing your heart, then maybe just think about, have, have I spent time sitting knee to knee with him, nose to nose, asking, Lord, may I just know you? That's all I want It's just to know you and make time for it. It's uncomfortable. Have you ever sat like that with somebody before? Probably not right? Or it's like a boy you're interested in and you're like, we did it for a moment. And then, well, we were closer than that. Like, I don't know. It happens. (laughs) It's awkward. 
It's uncomfortable because it's so vulnerable. And so it's so easy to avoid this, especially to step into it with the Lord and even just spend a moment and be like, man, I, that was unfruitful. Not doing that again. You know, like, but it's about patience. It's about continuing. It's about coming back again and again and again. And in time, the, that's the sweetness of that place will just, it'll just beckon you. Like, man, that's just where I want to be. So abiding prayer, intercessory prayer. You know, the passage here this, that we just read is actually really about intercessory prayer. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about. And, and the phrase that I really want to call out is this important one at the top. If we ask anything according to his will. If we ask anything according to his will. See, in prayer, we don't demand what we want. Rather, we discuss with him what he wants for us and for others. We align our prayers to his will and we can discern a de definite answer. Praying according to God's will is about unity. It's about alignment with him. So to kind of illustrate this, I want to show you a picture of something that you've all done at some point. Tug of war. Yeah. Anybody else like, oh, that's totally me. That was definitely Sarah. <laughs> I can do this. And everybody else is like, maybe you should just let go. I think we'll be okay without you. Um, it's probably true though, right? Oh, the thing is, I bet every one of you have probably been that person before though. Where you're on the rope and you're pulling, and maybe it was in like fifth grade or whatever where these kids are. Cool picture. I just looked it up. Sorry, kids. I don't know who you are. Maybe one of you's in here. Maybe this is an old photo and you grew up. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the, but like you've probably all been one of these people where you're like pulling on the rope, but like you're in a place where you're like, I'm not, I'm doing no good. I'm not doing anything good. Or you might even be one of those, you've been on a rope where you've got someone in front of you and you're pulling as hard as you can and they're like pulling in a way that it's like pulling in a different direction of what you're trying to do. And you're like, this is helping no one. I'm not pulling against the other team. I'm just trying to pull you to align you back in. And it's such a hassle. It's such a pain. In prayer, we need to be a team of people that recognizes there is a direction of victory. And we need to align with that direction of victory. You can jump on there and pull in whatever direction you want, but you're not going to see effectiveness until you align with the direction of victory, the direction God is pulling. And so that's why we need to pray according to his will. That's why we need to unite with him so that we're effective in what we're doing. As I stated earlier, we can have confidence in the effectiveness of our prayers when our prayer is aligned with him when you're pulling in the direction of victory, the direction of his will and his kingdom. All right, verse 16. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those sins, those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death and I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Anyone else confused? Yeah, it's confusing. It's okay. We'll get to it. The point I want to make first, though, if you could go back one, one slide. Verse 16 here. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. You should pray, and God will give them life. 
Prayer is a tool that we yield for others, not just ourselves. For others, not just ourselves. This is really important because I think so many of us forget that or just are unaware of it. And I say us because, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, there's times where I just come before and I'm like, all right, here's what I need. You know? Or maybe I call someone else out in this. I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to call Sarah out and make something up. Okay. So I work with Sarah. And it's like if I come before the Lord and I'm like, Lord, help Sarah so my life is easier. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be terrible? But I do that. Like, I do that with my wife. I do that with my kids. I do that with people. And I'm just being honest with you so that maybe you can be honest with yourself. We need to confront this stuff. Not because it's like, oh, shame, 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 but so that we can bring ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, oh, Lord, transform me. Transform me so that I'll be more like you. Please, please, Lord. I just want to actually love. I want to really love people. So, Prayer is wielded, a tool wielded for others, not just ourselves. And, and this is really important, what he's talking about here. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin, you should pray, and God will lead them to life. The idea here is being uh, any prayer, uh, prayer is a tool for correction. Prayer is a tool for correction. Now, get this. You know what aren't tools? Gossip, shame, and condemnation. We start with prayer. Prayer is where we start. When a brother or sister in Christ is in sin, prayer is our first action because prayer is about aligning ourselves to God's will and perspective. To discuss what he wants for them is where we ought to start because what he wants for them may look slightly different than what I want or what I think is best. It's about that alignment, right? getting aligned with uh, in that pulling in that same direction of victory. He sees them like we never could and may reveal their true need, their real need. And so change in us either the tone or maybe even the whole direction within which we approach someone. We should pray. We should pray. Uh, and like I said, this is just a big one, I think, in general, like for how we go about things for how we bring ourselves before the Lord and actually see ourselves as we are and say, Lord, I want to be a light bringer and help me be more bright <laughs> and authentic and real in what I'm doing. Now, I'm a pastor. I'm a dad. I'm a son. I'm a friend. And I have a lot of roles to fulfill and I have a lot of lives to speak into. I have a lot of lives to speak into. And like, honestly, straightforwardly with all of you, like, I know, I, I'm thankful. I think God has given me a gift of insight and wisdom. He has. I, I've seen it play out. It's humbling and wonderful. And I'm thankful for that. Each and every one of us has a gift. And God equips us to where he's called us. And thankfully, I can have confidence that God has called me to this because I've seen his equipping. He has equipped me with those things. The problem is, like, how, how often I lean on my insight and my wisdom without consulting the Lord on what this person actually needs. I lean on the gifts he gave me rather than the one who gave them. And I'm pulling in the direction that I just think is best, kind of all willy-nilly, you know? And sometimes it is good, and God is gracious to that. He's so gracious and kind. 
uh, for your sakes, I think, at times. But sometimes it is destructive. Sometimes it isn't helpful. It just wasn't what was really needed. I, I thought it was, but it, but it wasn't. And if I had brought myself before him, if I had brought this person before him and said, Lord, wh- what direction should I pull? And let him lead in that way. Man, he could have used those gifts for a whole lot of good. A whole lot more good than I used them for. You may see a brother or sister sin. And may you, you may even have the best intention for them. An insight that could prove helpful, but be prayerful. Going to God with it first and letting him season it and correct it so that you are truly in tune with him as you bring truth and grace into the lives of others. Because if we're really going to help them, if we're really going to help them, as I believe many of you do, many of us do, then we've got to be aligned with him. We've got to be pulling in that direction of victory. Prayer is the tool. Not gossip, not shame, not condemnation. We start with prayer. We also employ scripture. As it's written in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if you see a brother or sister in sin, pray and lean into the scriptures. And the second part, third part, I don't know, most important part, actually talk to them. I think all of what I just shared is entirely meaningless if you don't actually love your brothers and sisters in Christ enough to confront the sin within them. Do you actually love them enough to confront the sin within them? When's the last time you saw a brother or sister in Christ sin or have a pattern of sin or have something and you cared enough to speak up for their benefit? to call them out of it, to encourage them to better things. Do you love enough? I mean, that's what this whole letter First John is about, is like love your brothers and sisters in such a way that the world notices, that the world sees, that it would be proven the life of God within you. Do you grieve their sin? and long for them to move on from it, being set free from it, stepping into the light, like, do you hear your friend lying to your, their mom? Do you hear your friend lying to their mom, and do you feel any twinge of concern for them? Any joy in the thought of them walking out of that into righteousness? Do you have any gumption, I love this word, any gumption to lovingly speak to them about it? Do you? We need to be a people who love each other enough to engage with each other on the things that are most vulnerable and not just within yourself, but in others too. So if you see a brother or sister in sin, prayer, scripture, and by golly, do something. But do it lovingly, do it kind, because that's the prayer and scripture part, right? Is to let the Lord shape your heart and what you're doing and how you go about it. Now, the second part of this whole passage, right? I said, okay, one point, anybody confused? And a lot of people shook their heads and raised their hands. Okay, the confusing part, let's talk about it. 
what's with all this business about like sin that leads to death, sin that doesn't lead to death. And then it's like, but all sin is death. Pray about this. Don't pray about like what? <laughs> what? It's confusing. It is. It's just confusing. And I just got to be right straight with you because it's the most honorable and truthful thing to do. I don't think I can definitively say what that means. I don't think I can. Like, I don't think I can definitively say, oh, no, no, this is exactly what John meant, and take it to the bank. This is what it is. And I'm not concerned by that, and I hope that you're not either. Because there are a lot of people who have a lot of good ideas and convincing arguments that fit with the scheme of Scripture and are theologically coherent, and, and they make a lot of sense to describe what's going on here and explain it in detail. But straight up, we don't know for sure. We don't know. Like, you could come up with the best ideas, but it would be, it'd be like intellectually false of me to say, hey, by the way, here's what this means. This is exactly how it is. We just don't know. This letter was written by a guy who, who like had a specific thought in mind, and, and he assumed that based on past interactions, past conversations with the people he's writing to, the original audience, uh, that they would know what he's talking about, that they would read this and be like, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember when we wrote that other letter to John, and then like, like they would get it, and they probably did. Like They probably read this and were like, yeah, man. I remember when he talked on that in detail. And they're putting references to all of these words in a way that makes total sense to them. And like I said, there's a number of really good explanations. A bunch of them. A bunch. A couple, I'd say, really good ones. There's somewhere I'm like, ah, somebody's trying to be creative. Um, but there's a couple where it's just like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. That could totally be it. And then there's another one where you're like, oh, that could totally be it too. And so I'm just not going to stand up here and stump and say like, this is what it is. The truth is, I don't know exactly what it is to say, this is the sin that leads to death. But I don't think that matters because here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. That all sin leads to death. That grace intercepts death. And that without grace, all we have in the end is death. That all sin leads to death. Grace intercepts death. And without grace, all we have in the end is death. Shout out to Sarah for help with that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Callie, yeah. Uh, I'm thankful for people like Sarah, and I just want to encourage you to have people in your life as well that you bounce things off, that you think like, how, how do I say this? How does this work? What's going on? And we work together through this, and she helped write this. It's so helpful. So let's walk through it just real quick. I'm just going to read some passages related to each one. All sin leads to death. James 1, 14 and 15. Each one of us is tempted when by his own or her own evil desires, they are dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, what is full grown, gives birth to death. All sin leads to death. And we're the source it's rough, but it's true. Now here's the good thing. Grace intercepts death. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. This is a long one. Hang in there. But it's good. It's beautiful. 
As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Amen to that? Yeah. And the final one, without grace, we, all we have in the end is death. Hebrews 10, 28-31. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy in the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone who deserves to be, someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's an important uh, phrase that I think we all need to take to heart more seriously, and that's to fear the Lord. To fear him. To fear him is to recognize who he is and that he's here. (laughs) That he's present. The one who judges. The one who is perfectly righteous. The one who requires perfection. The one who sees all. He's around. He's here. And in a way, we should tremble before that, recognizing, oh man, Lord. It's only when we recognize that that we can actually value grace at how beautiful it is. It's only when we accept the incredible wrath of God, the possibility of that upon our life, that we can value grace in a way that sees it for how valuable and worthwhile it is and how huge the cross of Christ was. How huge the pain was that he took on. How huge the price was that he paid for you and I. A little further along in Hebrews 10, uh, a little further down in that same chapter, we get this, and this is a verse, a sentence that we should all take to heart after reading a verse like this. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Amen? Amen. That's you. That's me. We will not shrink back. We will not shrink back. And we will lean into faith, trusting God. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, 
God is future-oriented. He's a God of redemption, the source of all hope. He is the King of correction so that we may respond and, and enter the perpetually new life that Jesus calls us into. Trust like he is the Lord Almighty, giver of salvation, and live like he's given it to you because he has. He has. We are not the ones who shrink back. We are not the ones who will be destroyed because we have faith, because he's given it to us. And we're going to live like he has. If a brother or sister has sinned, pray the same thing over them. That they would trust like he is Lord, almighty giver of salvation, and live like he has given it to them because he has. Verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe. And notice one is capitalized. It's talking about Jesus, in case you're confused. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. All right. Here's the point I want to make. To protect our relationship with God, we must know who we are and who our enemies are. We must know who we are, and we must know who our enemies are. In the battle against sin, it is crucial that we keep our minds set on who we are in Christ Jesus. If we are born of him, then we have the resources to be free from habitual sin. Habitual sin. John is repeating this idea in the previous verse about you will not continue to sin. He's repeating this idea from chapter 3, verse 6, where he says a very similar thing. Whoever abides in him does not sin, him being God. And the grammar in the original Greek in both passages is clear, and it's way more descriptive than in our English how we translate it. John is speaking of a steady, constant lifestyle of sin. To continue to sin is to be in this place of steady, constant, repeatable, habitual sin. John is not teaching here the expectation of sinless perfection, but of a sinless direction. Of where are we going? That we are in a pursuit of righteousness. That we pursue righteousness. That we set our course and our aim is Christ Jesus himself. And that's why here at this church our motto is to make disciples who live in love like Jesus. Because it's about where we're aiming. It's about where we're going. Our goal is not to turn people from sin, but to turn people to Jesus. And in so doing, they'll let go of sin because they'll see how good he is. And he'll give all the things that we need to turn from sin. I think many of us get in this place where it's like, what is my life? Battling sin. That's my whole life. And then you keep getting whipped. You keep getting beat. And you're like, man, I'm bad at this. But a part of it is you're looking the wrong direction. You got to turn around and say, and look to him and trust that he's going to look back at sin and say, hey, no, no, you back off my boy. You back off my girl. We got to be people who pursue Jesus. That's what it's about. When you and I look at Jesus, who we are, who we are, who we are becomes clearer and clearer. And the things that are actually attacking us, the things that are our enemies become clearer as well. 
we'll see more clearly what it is that's actually hindering us, that's actually destroying us, because we have a clearer picture of who we are and who we're trying to become and where we're going, the direction we're going. And we can see, oh, man, that flag over there that's like, hey, this way, this way, like that's actually not helpful for me. I need to turn from that. I appreciate the way Pastor David Guzik sums up this section, uh, this passage that we just read, 18 through 19. He writes this. We know that we are of God. We know that. And if we are born of him, we are set off from the world. We're set apart from the Lord, the world. We are no longer under the sway of the wicked one, of the enemy, of the devil. And though the world still is, we no longer are. Knowing this means we can be free to be what we are in Jesus and disentangle ourselves from the world system that is in constant rebellion against him. We have an enemy, and it's sin, and it's the devil, and man, is he good at scheming. And until we can, we got to aim for who we are so that we can clearly see who it is that we're against. So we can clearly, it's like, anybody seen the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? No, wait, that's not the name of it. Shoot, that's the one with Russell Crowe. What's the one uh, that's like funny? Men in tights. Yeah, I knew somebody would know. Robin Hood, men in tights, right? There's, there's this guy, Blinken, who's blind. And he gets into a fight and he's got this sword. And like, he's like, he's very valiant. He's like, I'm going to fight. I do not want to be left behind. And there's a funny scene where like everybody's fighting and stuff. And he's going to town. He's like got all these crazy moves against like a wood post. Because <laughs> he just doesn't know. But I think many of us do that in our, in our lives as we fight against sin. We don't even know what we're attacking. But we're trying real hard. And all the time, there's somebody on the other side of us poking us, prodding us, doing all this stuff. And we're like, ow, ow, I got you, I got you. But he's behind us the whole time. we got to turn around. we got to know who we are so we can clearly see who the enemy is and then do something about it and say, back off. Put all those sweet sword moves onto him. All right, verse 20. Verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may, know, we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. You know, after having spent the bulk of this letter, all of the letter, warning of the dangers of like false Jesuses, false gospels that some were teaching in the place where John was writing. He so concisely concludes the letter with the just, it's like, I've been writing all this stuff, but here's kind of, you know, you can read it all or just take this. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. In a book that is very much worth reading uh, by A.W. Tozer called Knowledge of the Holy, he writes this at the very beginning of the book. It's, it's a book where he's, he goes in, he's trying to like pull out like how, who is God? Like who is he? In a way that's like understandable for like normal people like me. But at the beginning he writes this and I think it's so on point. Especially looking at dear children, keep yourselves from idols. He writes, let us be where? 
Let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized peoples are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. When they knew God, wrote Paul, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Then followed the worship of idols, fashioned after the likeness of men and birds and beasts and creeping things. But this series of degrading acts began in the mind. Wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. Another quote from another amazing man, Dallas Willard, from his book, Knowing Christ Today, Why We Can Trust Spiritual Knowledge. He writes, In modern life, It is more likely to be some sort of technical device or human arrangement, the government or the market perhaps, that we have come to trust. The idol, then, is more than just a physical object, for it is supposed to have powers that if humans appropriately serve it will be used to benefit them. In the end, the idol is always intended to be servant of the idol worshiper and their desires. I'll say that again. In the end... The idol is always intended to be servant of the idol worshiper and their desires. Thus it is humans themselves who are the universal idol. And that is why Paul calls covetousness idolatry. In coveting, I elevate myself to the position of having my way and getting the things I want, regardless of others. But idolatry, of whatever kind, never works out well because it is precisely a flight from reality. And often from knowledge of reality. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And an idol isn't just something external, it's even false thoughts about who God is. A God that serves us. Boy, what a gracious thing he does. But a world created for us, and us alone, that we're the sun, and everything else circles around us is a missing of the point. It's not reality. It's not reality. He's the center. He's the center. We can only have a real relationship with the God who is really there. We can only have a real relationship with the God who is really there. And this is our opportunity. This is our privilege, this life we have, this moment today, tonight, tomorrow, next week. This is our opportunity to come before the throne of grace, a magnificent, exalted throne that we have no business coming before, and have an audience with him as he reveals who he really is to us. Jeremiah 29, 13, and 14 says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What a beautiful thing. A God who decides, 
who longs to reveal himself to us as he really is, to be vulnerable with us. And so teach us what it is to live. What a good God. Let's pray. Father God, we're not worthy, Lord. We're not worthy to get the crumbs from your table, let alone be called your children. But thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, who is the word living, made flesh, and who himself is light and life and everything that is good and beautiful. In him there's no darkness. And despite our unworthiness, Lord, you have lifted us up. Father, you've called us to be lights in this world that reflect you. And so we give it all to you, Lord. No matter what it takes, no matter how painful it might seem, Lord, would you pull from us anything that hinders us from you, from reflecting truly and authentically and powerfully to this world who you actually are. Lord, you reveal yourself to us. And so now we come before you eager to know you more, eager to see you as you are. Lord, you're good. You're so good. Have your way in this place. And may you smile as we delight in who you are and the opportunity you've given us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.